Let's make sure history never forgets the name. Sci-fi melody. Got out. Sci-Fi Melody, Symptom 248, 20,000 Leagues, Under the Sea. Welcome back, sickies, and I apologize for Scott's horrible rendition of Under the Sea. But then again, we all know, amongst us three, I'm the singer. Which is really, <laughs> that is wow bad caliber. Well, when you, you're this bad, you can't be much worse than me. It, so it's, it's really hard to get worse, that's true. But nonetheless, our horrible singing notwithstanding, we have entered into Jules Verne July. This, I'll be honest, Siggy, this is a month that I've had in my mind for, oh, for years, thinking about how, why haven't we covered Jules Verne, one of the giants of science fiction? and finally here we are just ideas kept coming up and uh now here we are when you because you you have to make a simile and you had to figure out i had out. to make alliteration and yeah. this time around i couldn't think of one and then this idea popped back in so here we are with jules Verne july and i thought we would start off with now we could be covering just the books of course the man wrote books and we will be doing a little bit of comparison with the book but we're mostly going to focus on the films. Yeah, because we don't TV review shows. books. We review films and TV shows. <laughs> For the most part, unless we happen uh, to read Yes, the show. because we barely have time <clears throat> to get through the films and movies than getting through a whole book. Touche. However, there were times we have read short stories. If you remember back to Philip K. Dick month, we read all his short stories. Short. Yeah, I try to forget the times we try to review literature. We're just not as good at reviewing literature um, we as we did are o- films. We did okay that because we also <laughs> did comparison to the films themselves, but and which is what we're going to do here. But I thought we'd kick off with probably the most, the best masterclass example of a Jules Verne film, 20,000 Leagues in the sea, Under the Sea from 1954. Uh, starring James Mason and Kirk Douglas, two giants in the acting, two legends in the acting biz. And uh, this was a Disney film. Some of you might be shocked and go, what? I thought you guys hated Disney stuff. Well, not necessarily, but certainly not this. I, okay, I don't know about you two guys, but I grew up on this film and I loved this film. You know, I really don't have many problems with Disney pre, uh, what is it? What's that year? 2014. Ah. (laughs) So, but this film was really, um, from the effects to the acting to the story itself, this was a great movie. If you have a Disney Plus account, it's on there. If you don't, I, I highly recommend just getting a copy of it somewhere whether physical or streaming this is a great film to watch i'm bearing the lead but um if you have a disney plus account why are you supporting the greatest evil of our time and the destruction and assaulting of your childhood with what they've done to star wars because it comes with a hulu a subscription and your why would you and your support spouse- hulu which is tied into <laughs> disney your spouse wants it and it's <laughs> it's easier to deal with that okay Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, so, so just a quick thing here. Scott's going to get up on his uh, daddy pants and say, I'm not supporting Disney Plus until mom and daughter want Disney Plus, And then, okay. Oh, listen, that was just, that was just a, oh, I forgot to put on the sarcasm voice there. Oh, okay. Uh, I had Disney Plus for a very long time on, until a certain event caused me to panic and cancel almost every subscription I had because of things that happened. Certain in, outside events. In, in so. April. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, but. that notwithstanding, let's get into it. So, um, the book and the film aren't that dissimilar. Uh, the film is a story about a, a sea monster ravaging the South Pacific, and shipping is in a t- uh, is in a, a tizzy. There's not much of it going on, and a professor uh Ananux, i can't pronounce his name and his assistant played by peter laurie and if you don't know who peter laurie is he's the guy that sounds like this that was terrible but you get the gist he's jj abrams <laughs> now 
Who's your, same mystery yeah, box. Same mystery yeah, box. That, yeah. that sounded yeah. very much like your mystery my, well, box. Well, yeah, my mystery box is mystery you know, terrible. Box. Is a terrible Peter Lorre. But anyway, um, and they are trying to get to. I think it was Singapore. Was it? They're trying to get to Saigon. Saigon. That was when it was a French colony still. Because this takes place in 1860 something. Supposedly 1868. 68, thank you. We'll get into that. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into that with our next episode. But the Nautilus is a time is a uh, time time design. Yeah. So um, the problem is makes as much sense as some of the other science. They can't get a ship over. And then the U.S. government comes to him and says, well, you're a very famous professor internationally. You've written a lot of books about marine biology. Would you accompany us? We're doing an expedition to find the sea monster. It's going to be a very roundabout method because we're going to go in circles to comb the sea. But um, will you come with us? The captain is dubious. He thinks it's just kind of some ship. But they bring this professor along. And the professor is willing to tag along because he's going to get to Saigon. So they go and they don't find anything. Accompanying them is a harpooner, Ned Land, played by Kirk Douglas. And they're just having a jolly old time until one day they see a boat attacked. And yeah, I they, love how the naval vessel has a harpooner. Um, I mean, maybe they figure because it's a sea monster that they're going to treat it like whaling, I guess. I mean, uh, that makes enough sense, I guess. Also, at the time, the U.S. Navy it, wasn't exactly what you call too... It's big they expedition were a little, to... They were a little occupied at the time, I would say, but just occupied roll with it. Occupied and rebuilding and also because the biggest thing was Japan at the time. At Everything this, else, screw it. Screw it. Every, you know, it, Jules Verne wasn't big on that kind of detail, so we're just going to have to roll with it. <laughs> so anyway, um, eventually they see this other ship attacked and they try to go rescue. But in the process, they, them, they, they try to help the other ship by shooting uh, mortar at it hit this monster the monster doubles around attacks them sinks them and the only survivors that we know of are the professor his assistant and later ned land who discover this sea monster and start walking on it they go inside and they eventually find out it's a submarine it's not a sea monster it's a submarine and they are later caught by captain nemo the captain of the submarine who basically says I'm a citizen of no country because I hate every country. I guess you could call him the original flag smasher, I suppose. Except he has a special target he goes after. He calls it the hated nation, which is really just Britain. But let's just put it out there, Britain. And he wants the professor to stick around because he wants to help. He's in it for, Nemo's in it for scientific discovery and fighting the Brits. But he wants the professor around to help him in his marine studies. And they go around, they do a lot of experimentation, and they do a lot of this and that. Encounter some natives who are headhunters, and yeah, problematic warning. But in the end, Nemo, they, the three characters who are stuck on the, the Nautilus, the submarine, realize that we're prisoners, we need to get away from this Nemo guy because he's nuts. We find out a little bit that Nemo and his crew are former slaves from the island of Rurapente. Put the a Klingon pin, penal put the, colony? Put a pin in that. That's <laughs> going to be a fun fact. I'll just bury that fun fact now. Yes, exactly the same. When I heard that, I was like, the Klingon penal colony? Huh. Look at that. There's I your Star Trek connection. I wonder where that name got, came from. Well, actually, this came out before it, so... Uh, I'm That's just, my point. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, there's your Star Trek connection. <clears throat> the penal colony no one can get away from except once on Star Trek VI. Oh, and we did it again in Star Trek Enterprise because... Yeah. The exact same way. <laughs> so, uh, trying, trying to repeat the one thing that was awesome is always better. Anyway. Um... So what happens is uh, we find out that him and his crew are former slaves in India, and that's why they hate the British so much. And it comes to a point where they're trying to escape, and they wind up going into a storm, getting attacked by a giant squid. Ned Land saves Captain Nemo's life, and they get to stay around. And then Nemo realizes the British are on an island where he built the Nautilus, so he goes to his island to blow the place up. And in the process gets shot. 
and kind of drifts away after that. Um, the book is very similar to that. Instead of leaving from San Francisco, the crew with leaves from uh, Brooklyn, New York. And they do a lot of exploration, including finding the lost city of Atlantis, the transatlantic cable, a bunch of other neat stuff. However, at the end of the story, what happens is the three escape during a sea storm. The, the ship, go, the Nautilus goes into the Maelstrom and uh, the three escape while Nemo is stuck in there. And then we don't know what happens to the Nautilus after that. So the book is very is kind of similar, but we also get a little bit more about Nemo's backstory that he is Indian. In fact, a he was the descendants of some Raj that got the British Raj that got defeated. And now he's kind of doing the sea exploration and getting back at the Brits. A few fun facts, because we have some interesting um, as part of our rips and picks, there's going to be a tactical discussion that Thomas and Scott were having before this that was actually really quite fun. But a few fun facts. Um, so the big squid battle was originally shot with a sunset and a calm scene. But the problem is you could see the mechanism moving the squid. So Walt Disney showed up and told um, the director, Richard Fleischer, why don't you just do it during a fierce storm so you can cover up all of the all of the mechanisms good idea walt because it worked i'm sure you could find him if you're really looking but the way they cut the editing the film and everything you don't really it looks good especially for 1954 well that's there there it is yes you have to accept kind of an older film so yeah cgi doesn't exist that's not a thing and (laughs) strings are used and yeah you're stuck but Again, for the time period, this was really quite good. Excellent effects. In fact, um, considering the Nautilus, uh, the bubble streams that come from the Nautilus exist so they can hide many of the strings and wires (laughs) that are used. So if you're wondering, why does the Nautilus make so many bubbles in the movie? There's a reason. I thought it was powered by farting unicorn. <laughs> uh, that's what they called electrical because it was powered by electricity, which wound up being nuclear weapons. And um, Kirk Douglas, the guy who plays Ned Land, who does the Whale of a Tail song you heard at the beginning of the intro, he, with the help of someone else on set, taught himself to play the guitar and sing. He didn't know before? Nope. And that whole guitar flip gimmick, he taught himself that. He did. Uh, While playing it, he he figured that out, and they were like, they were like, "Ooh, do that!" That is some commitment to uh, your craft. Yeah, that's Definitely. a lot of dedication. Wow. Um, until the late '60s, many of the sets were used in Disney in Disneyland. They you could go into it, and there was like a go through the Nautilus, and the pipe organ wound up being when they dismantled it. Finally, the pipe organ wound up in Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. It's still there. Yeah, um, I feel that is a. Uh, we'll get back to that later. We'll put a pin in that. <laughs> oh yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't work probably. No, 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 nothing about that. Oh okay. Um, during the shooting of the scene where the Ned Land and um, the uh, Consile Peter Laurie's character, the professor's assistant, go to look for treasure from a sunken boat, the nurse shark that shows up. Yeah, that was an accident. It huh. just showed up. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, during the, uh, let's see, an unscripted nurse shark approached Ned. All underwater personnel, as seen in Disney's Wonderful World of Color Sunday Night Television, attempted to ward the shark off, but the interruption was considered so exciting that they left him in the film. Because it was, it was natural. When yeah. they're waving at the shark to go away, it's like, well, this is too perfect. Leave it. <laughs> this is back to, guys. I mean, very few actors endanger themselves. Back in the day, you had to. Especially in the what we call the golden age of cinema from the 20s till, let's say, the beginning of the 50s. Stuntmen? What's a stuntman? Yeah, you were just going to get tied up to a post by Alfred Hitchcock and let real birds come try to attack your face. Exactly. It was like, this is, it's, uh, how am I going to throw, so uh, the stuntman's going to throw the board at the train there? Stuntman? No, he's here to show you how, how to, to do, do it. it. Yeah. So get on there. We'll, we'll, we'll do a dry run, and then uh, good luck. 
Do we have insurance? Insurance? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. We'll, we'll get right on it. We got, we got the claims agent on the phone right now. We can reshoot this without you. <laughs> <laughs> now jump in front of that train. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you jumped out of the train too fast. You had to get almost hit. And we're talking almost, almost hit. All right, there's a production meeting. We need to replace the lead. He mistimed the train jump. So a couple other fun things. Um, the production was so large that Disney had to use several other studios, including Universal International and 20th Century Fox, for the large exterior tank of the large models. They filmed a lot in the Bahamas, but when they needed to use sets, they had to go around. It was a quite a large endeavor that they were doing. Could here. you imagine that happening today? Um, yes. Oh, wait, it could, because Disney owns them all. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Um, they, let's they see. Just, this was the head start where they figured out who do we want to acquire in the future. Mickey Mouse just shows up and says, I need you to stay. <laughs> I think the last one, last point I'll do, because I want to really get to these rips and picks in the tactical discussion. Uh, so in the movie was uh, the, the sea lion. Uh, what was the name? Esmeralda. Ezzy. All of the cast were told, you have to carry herring in your pocket so when Ezzy does a good job, you give her a treat. <laughs> so they all smelled like fish. Bingo. <laughs> they all smelled like fish because whenever Ezzy did the part right, they had to give her a treat. And so, I mean, that's one way to do it. I would say that's better treatment of animals than the film Beastmaster did where they let that giant tiger die because they just <laughs> slathered black paint all over it without considering if it was toxic. And when the animal cleaned itself and they were like, hey, this animal keeps licking the paint off him. Is that going to be a problem? Nah, it's all right. Just keep slathering it on. So oh, uh, man, no, I'm just thinking about what happens when the sea lion wants a treat and smells herring and you don't have any more in your pocket and gets you look to the guy next to you, hey, uh, <clears throat> the animal was either very disciplined or just, you know. Bad sea lion, bad sea lion. You, oh, jeez. You also had, anyway, Scott, of course, going to the gutter, if not Star Trek. So I think that's enough for the story. Let's jump on in here. and I could do the rips and picks, but let's start with this tactical discussion because this was a really neat thing. Let me set the stage and then I'll, Scott and Thomas will get into it. This is... 1868, which is a rip unto itself because of the fact that 1868, um, I, and then the sequel is going to become more of a problem because it's supposed to happen during the U.S. Civil War, and the, the sequel to this, Mysterious Island, comes after this, and the Civil War is over in 1865. Jules, yeah, but were you really did, paying attention? They did travel from Richmond to the South Pacific by hot air balloon. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, maybe, just maybe that trip took 10 years and they didn't show them occasionally landing and refilling their yeah, canteen and a, food there's, supply. There's, or a, lo there's a lot of leaps here. But you know what I say to that? It's an easy thing to, to mind warp around. And two, it's one of those things where it's, you can make so many mistakes till your whole movie's shot. I mean, not to drag too much into it, but Obi-Wan. Three lightsabers through the chest, not killing people. Um, I'm, no, no, that doesn't work. No. What? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. The main bad guy, Reva, as a child, was killed by Anakin as the lightsaber to the chest. Oh, well, supposedly killed. Then she was killed again with a lightsaber to the chest, but not. And the Grand Inquisitor was killed by a lightsaber to the chest, but not. Yeah, well, I, you know, Darth Maul survived being cut in half, and, and Palpatine was blown up on the Death Star so and survived. I mean, so, I mean, they basically decided lightsabers work when we want them to. Oh, yeah, and the lightsaber hit Stormtrooper armor and bounced off it. But an open palm strike to the face by the one character, oh, that, that, that knocks the Stormtrooper flat I'm out. actually getting gladder that I... Yeah, don't, don't watch it. It, it, wow. it. it took fortitude. Gladder, it took that's fortitude. not even a wood. It doesn't matter. It makes it's more better. sense than what I just heard. Exactly. Yeah, true. So anyway, we can kind of overlook certain things. Um, but the discussion at hand is that this is the 1860s, and this, the Nautilus is using... That's our co-host for the week. <laughs> You're not going to pause it? Yeah, go ahead. 
the discussion of of what Disney did to Obi Wan Kenobi in Star Wars made our co-host my nine week old daughter cry. But I've pacified her with a bottle, so we should be good. Okay, and we're also going to walk away from that discussion. So anyway, 1860s, the Nautilus functions destroying ships by going up to them, going under them, and these aren't ironclads, so using the steel, cutting a, a, rending the hull in twain, I suppose, and sinking it. Thomas takes a little bit of issue with this. So Thomas... Why don't you go ahead and say why this is um, difficult, to say the least? Okay. So, when this takes place, it's in a period of naval history that is very much in flux of what the future looks like. Because you have naval theorists now trying to figure out with ironclads and iron now... They had enough trouble with just iron-bottomed ships. Just putting iron side uh, metal on the side of a ship had already screwed up uh, artillery fire. Because a lot of times, shells would bounce. Um, but the question of ramming did come back up. It did. I, I'm not going to disagree with it. Now... Ramming was considered only really plausible against wood ships. Sure. The being, now admittedly, the movie does only show wood ships, but those were being phased out very quickly. Most ships were moving on to either a metal siding added or a full metal uh, side or armored plate. Now, wouldn't... Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate, but then can come back to your side. In World War II, there are stories of destroyers ramming submarines. However, that, I think, was an absolute desperate, like, last-minute tactic. This, this was not something you did. You did this when it came down to do this or the convoy well, sunk. It's also, if you notice, there was a key word there. You said subs. Subs are a very, 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 very thin hull. Okay. So... A, you didn't want to do it, but your destroyer, you ram a sub, you might lose or damage your front, and again, last last measure, but you'd ram, damage a couple things, seal them off, you could live. The sub, the sub on the other hand, couldn't. It okay. gets flooded, it's done. Okay, so you're more, okay, go on. You're talking about more ship-to-ship kind of thing. Yes. All right. Um, But no, ship-to-ship. Ramming was considered a very real possibility in the future. The debate was continuing, and pretty much all nations did start building some ships designed for ramming. Um, but the no navy went fully into it because there was a very conflicting argument over it. If technology and gunning would advance far enough to use armor or if armor would continue to stay ahead um obviously we know where it actually ended up <laughs> because i think it's 1880 is when they first came out with armor piercing shells and that's when it very quickly went mm, ramming sucks and we'll back off from that 100 percent. but mm, this obviously was written before that but again my problem is it's a sub you're underwater any kind of ramming is going to do damage to a hull because I don't care what kind of futuristic math you're going to do. If you're going to go that deep under the water, you need a very strong pressure hull that is either going to be way too heavy or it's going to be way too thin to be able to be ramming ships. Make up your mind. Yeah, I'm going to defend Jules Verne here. Um... First and foremost, submarine technology was still in its infancy. Really hadn't figured it out, so I don't think they understood all the dynamics about how um, mm -hmm. how much pressure they would have to be. I mean, they knew in general, but um, from the beginning of naval history, whether it's the Greeks, the Phoenicians, Carthage, Romans, the primary tactic for a long time was ramming. Then you started to get to cannonballs. And yes, you did have broadsides. 
But even at that point, you still had rams, and you still had a belief that if you could outmaneuver the ship and hit it amidship under the sea line with a ram, you could sink that ship. In the Civil War, very recently, um, I mean, the Confederacy was basically just building rams because it was the only option they really had. They couldn't really match production ironclad for ironclad, so they were building rams, and they were sending those rams out to sea to to seize shipping, um, mercenary rams. Ultimately, though, at the time that this is being written, in 1870 and 1875, new technologies had come and gone, and the ram had remained tried and true. And we can see uh, just because it appears like a new technology is going to replace it. I'll say the aircraft carrier. The time of the aircraft carrier may honestly soon be over. It's a giant target that can be hit from many, many miles away or from drones. or from. Now, whether, whether we're right or wrong on this, time will tell. But we're still building new aircraft carriers. We're still basing most of the naval strategy around the aircraft carrier as the best way to get all of your... Uh, material and men at the enemy the quickest and take them out. But in the next war, we may find out that, that China takes our carrier fleet out in the Taiwan Strait before we can do anything, before we can even get in range. We may not. We may not, okay? But the point is that as of today, there is an argument that the aircraft carrier is not something we should be focusing on. We should be focusing more on drones and things that are flying and things that are not stationary in the sea. Same thing with the RAM at that time. Yes, armor-piercing shells were going to change the game. Yes, armor was going to change the game. But ultimately, this had been heard before, and what had always been tried and true for 6,000 years of recorded history was you can ram ships in the ocean below the sea line and sink them. So it makes sense to me that if Jules Verne is thinking of a new weapon in a new future, that they will just have enough technology to put a fin on top and even more effectively ram the enemy as you surface and punch a hole in it and sink it, disengage, and get away. I'll defend Jules Verne here. The ramming made sense to me. Oh, I would say only with wood ships because the problem, again, being that most ships were transferring over to metal. You just need a, a stronger metal. Yeah. Metallurgy... I get it, but again, it's science fiction. He's just assuming he can come yes. up with a with a yes. better ram that will ram through metal. Well, yeah, and he was um, and also. Not... I, this doesn't factor in. Well, not because it doesn't factor in. I'm not going to bring up the electricity and all, but that's never a factor. So never mind. Okay, um, but I, I'm not disagreeing with you, Scott, because absolutely you do have a good point. Rams have not never a hundred percent gone out of favor. Mm-hmm. But I would say a better comparison would be battleships in World War Two. But mm, yeah, battleships did kind of get pushed aside after by aircraft after carriers. Great, yeah, yeah, aircraft carriers definitely replaced. You saw this especially in the Pacific, yeah. where essentially the destroyer was useful, but it wasn't the way you were going to win that war, the P- battle of the Pacific. Destroyers? You mean uh, battleships? Battleships. Yeah. Was battleships. it? Was it the like destroyer? Battleships. <laughs> Battleships were useful, but they weren't going to be your key to victory. Oh, what about the Bismarck? Was it the Bismarck when it went down that basically Germany had its whole naval plan on the Bismarck? Um, uh, yes and kinda. no. I mean, it was about the U-boats, but the Bismarck going under... It, it, it forced if Kriegsmarine to never go back out yeah correct they they basically decided that well guess the surface fleet wasn't the way to go so they leaned heavier into subs which war was it where one of the british uh admirals said there seems to be something wrong with our ships today they're exploding quite well yes (laughs) also technically speaking that bismarck did quite well and only really sank that one doesn't compare well compared to the pacific the pacific is where where really you saw yeah that's where the death nail for battleships came where it went okay battleships are vulnerable are slow yeah and can be hit way before they get in range right so but again 
and 20 years earlier in World War One, they were the, the battleship was the was the key to victory. Everything in your navy was built around your battleships. Yes. Well, well, I mean, it was much more important. Technically speaking, I guess those were not battleships; those those were dreadnoughts. Well, battleships of the day, but it, the yes. point the point is, your submarines and your aircraft carriers were not the key to supremacy. No, but again, each technology advance does change the game. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I get, and this is where I do agree with you, Scott, because we don't didn't know where technology was going. That who knows? Maybe certain things come about, goes differently. Subs that ram are the way of the future. I get where he's coming from, and I do. But the other problem being, he didn't take into the other side of the calculation. It's always been a sword and shield combat. And for such a leap forward to suddenly go submersible and ramming to combine the two, that... I will give him huge props for being able to get there and figure out what was coming in a way with subs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially with the energy source. Um, now, he didn't call it nuclear. He called it electricity of some kind. But Wasn't it hydrogen? Uh, it might have been, but in the book, it's electricity. But the point is, he saw a new kind of ultra energy making this possible. So essentially, he... Envision the nuclear sub before the nuclear sub was a thing. Yes, he um, did. Which, again, I totally support and, and respect him because he did very, to a degree, actually catch on to a lot of things that, I mean, we didn't catch on to and, and achieve until much later. I mean, we do have subs that literally have special forces deploying from them and... Yeah, and that's and that's something that um, a good science fiction author can do. They can look at something feasible. Plus, he knew if we're gonna have subs, we're gonna have to have better sources of fuel. Though we can't he, do the steamship with a sub; yeah. it's just not gonna work. Though he did screw up one aspect. Well, you have to forgive. Him for well, that. if you have electricity underwater, guess what? <laughs> you don't run out of ale. Um. Probably not, but then it, I mean, no, no, a nuclear submarine doesn't ne never can, well unless the generators and the reactor goes offline. Mm -hmm. You can create unlimited fresh water and uh, oxygen. Oh, because all it is is taking the readily accessible H two O that's all around you and splitting the oxygen from the hydrogen. Oh, that I did not know. And then you get your oxygen, and you just release the hydrogen back out into the ocean. So, so I'm looking just at his ba Jules Verne's background. Um, it doesn't appear he was in any um, studies in Paris. I'm looking to see if he had any military background whatsoever, and it appears he did not. No. But so, um, so even he I... can't even he can't even like say he messed up his naval background he just there's there's nothing here it's oh yeah and this um, is why i i disagree with some of it but i can't fault him for it because this is a guy who he doesn't know he's th looking into the future and going off of science really into a field of military aspects that he doesn't really know or understand. I but mean, he, he's guessing. He's yeah. guessing his way through it. So I mean, he also kind of guessed that the U.S. Navy would become much more freedom of navigation-wise. Because <laughs> mm. apparently we took on, in this book, the U.S. Navy did a freedom of navigation mission way before that thing even... Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a re scientific research, I guess, but... I have a um, question. It might rage. It might take you if you don't mind. Uh, something you probably uh, didn't plan on, but it'll well, be maybe quick. Sure, yeah, I think okay. it'll be good. Knock yourself out, Captain Nemo. Yeah, you know, there's the argument between the professor and between Nemo, mm -hmm. and and you, you know, you're a hypocrite. You're a murderer for someone who doesn't like murder. You just murdered people, mm -hmm. and you know, Nero is obvious. Nero, Nemo is obviously anti-imperialism. That that's a clear message clearly, throughout clearly. the whole thing. Um, he calls himself the Avenger. Mm -hmm. He's balancing the scales. 
He's in the death of 100. He saves the death of 10,000. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about Nemo? Because I think we have to discuss that in any podcast about 20,000 leagues under the sea. Oh, boy. Because so... he is focused on vengeance. But is he a moral avenger? Or it's... is he equally part of the problem? You know, this was going to come up in a... This, it's okay you did this. This is going to come up as part of my rip and pick of Nemo himself. Um, this was a pick, by the way. Uh, there's so many picks about the, the character from the actor to the way he carries himself. First of all, let me get some some surface stuff out of the way before I dive into what you just asked, because it's a great question. First, I really miss the kind of villain who is A, a villain, and B, uh, a calm, scary demeanor. For some God knows reason today, and I don't know what it is, modern villainy must be someone throwing temper tantrums and shouting. Great example of this would be, excuse me, um, Kylo Ren. There is nothing scary about Kylo Ren. He just looks like a child with a temper tantrum. Um, Yes, Darth temper tantrum screaming about how his dad failed him. While he's listening to Simple Plan in his head. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's just villains are not allowed to be villains. And when they are villains, they're just throwing temper tantrums and yelling and shouting. And that's not to say that you can never do that, but we overdo it now. I want the cool measured. I'm afraid of this guy because he is. He doesn't care. The Tarkin type villain. Somewhere along the line, they forgot that um, Dr. Evil. From Austin Powers is a parody of a villain and not supposed to be what you actually build your villain on. (laughs) So there's that. But there's also the fact that, you know, I complain about this saying, well, why do we every single villain has to be nuanced and maybe we sympathize with them? You don't have to do that. But here it makes sense. It's not a tragic factor. Well, that's the the question. That's the question. Because he is the villain, but there is that he, he's not the Darth Vader villain. He's not the guy who just, um, you know, got way too powerful, way too fast, got the emperor in his ear and he just became a horrendous homicidal maniac. He is a guy who, even if you read the book and you'll see this more in a mysterious island, that he was raised in a British India took part in a revolt, failed, had his entire family killed. Um, and so, yeah, he's got all the right reasons to not only hate imperialism, but hate his imperial occupier. And considering that India, when you look at kind of like um, British occupation, India fared far worse than North America did. And we revolted over far less. So by what right would we have to say, well, we were not being slaughtered wholesale by native, by an exploited to the degree that India was. We were not. Technically speaking, India revolted multiple times. Correct. There was the sepoy. It just never succeeded. But the point is, we were not, we did not fare as badly as India or some of the other British colonies. We just didn't. Because we were at least the North, uh, the American colonies yeah, they were considered children, but they weren't considered like lesser, stupider children. And there is a racial component to that. Yeah, I agree. If you but, if you really go back and look at the American Revolution, the the I'm not quotes, trying to get down to that patriot <laughs> reason for revolting is pretty petty and pretty it's, greedy. Well, there's there's a lot to it, but I don't want to go down. Some that. great propaganda done I don't, over the years. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Okay, I'm just trying to say that Nemo has a reason to hate. The Brits and imperialism. He's got a darn good reason that I don't think anybody in this room could look at and say, yeah, I get why he hates him. Makes perfect sense to me. So, and he's looking at it from, as you said, Scott, I killed these hundred Brits so that I could save 10,000 Indians or um, people well, in Somalia from being occupied by, you know, so from Cape to Cairo won't happen, that kind of thing. Yes, except there's the aspect that okay it brings up a very interesting point mm-hmm. and you're probably going where i'm going but keep going okay. so 
to prevent someone else from killing someone, you are killing someone. You're not actually killing the person who's going to do the killing either, or even doing it really in self-defense. You're killing innocent sailors here who are transporting just goods sometimes. Correct. And that's and that was the point I was going to make that you have your right to be angry, but it it comes down to this. So let's just take I don't know and and, and let me put this out there first. I am not being pro Taliban here. Don't support the Taliban by any stretch. Scott, make your joke. Wow, what a <laughs> world we're in that we have to throw that disclaimer out. Okay, there's your joke. But I want to know where you're, you're going that you need that disclaimer. If you are in Afghanistan and you're looking around and you see that uh, U.S. forces, or, or even before U.S. forces, every time there's a central government, they're corrupt, horrible human beings. And I just want justice. And this Taliban guy pulls up and plugs the guys. I want to join up with them. That's how it was described to me by an Afghani. Do I agree with him? No, because look at the, look at the baggage you have to take for that justice. Yeah, at that moment, it seems nice. But then when you look at the package that comes with it. So essentially what you're doing is you might have someone serving in the Afghan government that granted is corrupt as all get up, but this individual isn't, they're just a, they're just a clerk. And now they're getting executed by the Taliban for a guilty by association. Or you could do this in another way, you know? Um, yeah, that's the problem. Guilt by association. It's you are in the British Navy. Therefore you are directly responsible for killing Indian people. And, and, and it forgets things like draft, impressment, and everything else. It's like, this is just a guy from Norfolk who well, was forced into service. No, no, not, it's even worse than that. He's killing not even British naval personnel. He was going after anything flying the, flying the Union Jack. Exactly. Right. So, Which means those would be literalist civilian targets. And that could be someone from a colony on top of it. Well, you just killed yes. someone who's under the colonies. Well, so the more important press, press, problem bleh, problem for me is that, again, he's not only – he's just targeting anything flying that. So that can be civilians. Could be a person who's It could who's be a, a passenger liner. Exactly. Civilians. What you're doing is actually the worst possible thing because what's going to happen is instead of you stopping this, you're going to rile up – any kind of militarism going on over there, it's going to rise. You're going to have civilians ramp it up. Absolutely hating your guts and actually demanding more to be done. You're going to have more exploitation to get you because, well, I guess we got to build up our military even more. We need more resources from these colonies. Right. Exploit them more. And I'm sorry, you're one ship. I don't care how fast you are. You're not going to be able to sink ships faster than, than they're built. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're you, doing nothing, all you're it, doing is making it worse. If this were a case where he were attacking purely military objectives that were specifically, especially being used to enforce imperialism, I'd have a harder time deciding this. Yeah. But as he's attacking anything flying a Union Jack or whatever catches his fancy, um, it's turning into a case of uh, guilt by association. I'm going to kill you because this is, let's put it in another way. Scott, you're in, I'm not going to say company, but you're in the financial sector. Let's say a bank forecloses on my house through some loophole or whatever that I find bad. There's no loophole. If you just don't pay your mortgage, they'll foreclose. I'm just trying to say that let's say I, I feel I have been wronged. So I have decided anyone in the finance sector, especially mortgage, is on my ire. Um, is that right? That if I bust into your house and plug you because uh, Chase Bank did me wrong? Now, you're, he, Scott doesn't work for Chase Bank. I'm not condemning Chase. I'm just giving an example here. The of answer is not. no. No. So does Nemo have a justification for his disgust of imperialism? 100%. No argument. Does he have a reason for his distrust, distaste of the British? 100%. Does he, 
does he have a right to kill anything flying a Union Jack flag? Well, now you're entering those terrorist waters. In my opinion, in my opinion, Nemo is a villain. He's not a hero. He's not an anti-hero. Um, in, in my opinion, Nero's Nemo's moral compass. I'll tell you why I keep going to Nero in a second. Okay. In my opinion, Nemo's moral compass is gone. He doesn't have one. He's amoral. Precisely. At this point. He. Exactly. It's He's all about achieving. It's all about achieving his goal, which is he wants to create something so powerful that it will prevent war from happening ever again. And, and if, we'll see that more in the next movie. And if that kills a bunch of people in the process, so be it. Yes, you're either you're either helping him reach the end goal, or you are the enemy. Um, it's almost to the point where human life has lost its value to him unless it can help him. Exactly. As he's trying to defend human life, and when you've lost your own morality. In the name of morality, you're not the hero, you're the villain. You're just as bad. Uh, he is not the avenging angel. He is, he is simply killing out of anger. And the reason I keep going to Nero instead of Nemo is that I think that in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek 2009 reboot, mm -hmm. instead of having the villain be named Nero, he should have named the villain Nemo. Because... That guy on his mining vessel is simply killing every Vulcan he can find mm -hmm. because he's angry that a Vulcan failed him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, JJ, you had the perfect symbolism and you missed it because you suck. But, um, you know, ultimately, that's why I keep going that way with it. But Nemo is a villain to me. He's lost it. And, and they are right that they need to escape him. They are right that you don't help this man. And you are right that if he gets the power that he wants to, his solution will be maybe worse than the problem. And it's two sides of the same coin. The, the, the hated nation is killing people for power and control. Nemo is killing people to prevent power and control. But you're using the same means to a different end. Precisely. Well, actually, I would say that it's more like he is actually not just the villain, but something slightly worse. I feel that he is using morals to paint over what he's doing. To He knows he's doing terrible things. But he doesn't care. He no, thinks no, no. he's justified in it. Yes, but he is using morals to justify it. Not, mm -hmm. not that this is why he's doing it. No, he's using it to try to alleviate the soul because he does know he is the villain. He does know he's doing something wrong. And he's trying to alleviate it by saying, no, 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 no. I'm doing it for a greater reason. I'm doing it mm -hmm. for the betterment. When really, dude, you just hate everyone and want to see everyone dead. Yeah, well, unless they fall under his purview of acceptable. I mean, and that's the problem. He also makes himself the standard bearer, the goal-based. This moral is good because I decree it. End of story. Yes. This this person is good or bad because I decree it. There is End no of story. There is no black or gray. Uh, well, black bla or white. Black or white. There is a black or white, and I determine what is. Right. He's he determines what's black and white, and there's no gray areas, and he's a hundred percent right in his mind, which so, is very dangerous, especially when you start mixing in his ability to then moralize what he does, because that right. becomes very dangerous for the person doing it because they will moralize every decision they make as the morally just thing to do. And, th and that's why I brought up something like a Taliban because yes, could a Taliban go after a corrupt evil person and knock him out? Sure. But is that really the Avenger you want on your side? Because they're just as liable to turn the gun on you because you don't fit their standard. And the same with Nemo. I mean, Let's not forget here, France was an imperialist power as well. And I suspect the only reason that the professor was given leeway on the submarine is because he was a scientist and Nemo was a scientist. So he, going back to the science fiction idea of, well, scientists could never do something evil. They're out for exploration. So it's that faulty belief that what could a scientist ever do wrong? But of course, we know the professor does have a moral compass and does feel bad about this. And even though he's fascinated, you see this in the book especially, he's fascinated by Nemo. But the problem is, uh, he also was repulsed by him. And eventually they do have to get out of there. So, uh, well, I guess there's enough time for just a few rips and picks. But... Uh, 
Aside, isn't it amazing when you think that it's going to be a very short episode and, and there's I nothing much it. to talk about? Know, we we pull something amazing out of it. I blame you. <laughs> um, so a few rips are picks on myself. I, honestly, I have very few rips. The rips would mostly be in chronology, but I can't blame the film company for that. Um, the picks would be the acting. James Mason, stellar actor, perfect Nemo. Whenever I see Nemo, I picture this guy. Yeah, I know he doesn't exactly fit the bill of Indian, but neither did what's-his-name for Khan. Try picturing someone else as Khan. I dare you. Benedict Cumberbatch, you failed. Maybe that's because you had a bad director, but nope, I don't see you as Khan. Um, And so he was a brilliant, just the way he spoke. I do not consider myself a subject of any country or any country that would have me. I, just so calmly walking by. It's the Tarkin effect. Brilliant. Scary. Um, and Kirk Douglas as Ned Land. I mean, the fact that he learned how to sing, learned how to play the guitar, did the guitar spin. In fact, the scene at the beginning where he gets into a fight, that was where he walks up with two ladies and he gets in a fight, he demanded that because he was like, hey, this is the kind of guy I play. Where's the ladies and where, when am I going to punch something? Because most of the film, he wasn't doing that. And he was like, but I'm an action guy. And so they worked that in. And if you notice, the two ladies are the ones he named in the song. So nice little connectivity there. Peter Lorre, stellar actor. I mean, there is not a bad actor in this film. There isn't anyone. If, and if you are going to say there's a cardboard actor, well, it's, this, it's the crew. But then again, are you really watching it to hear the crew go, squid at port bow, Captain? That's all you need from them. Otherwise, no, no, that's my, my pick is the fact that for 1954, the cinematography in this is amazing. It it doesn't look like a film. In some ways it does, but it doesn't look like a film made in 54. Mm-hmm. I've seen other stuff. We've watched other stuff made in the 50s. This is far and away better than most of the other stuff in the, in the, in the 50s. I understand why this did so well. It continued to do so well. Disney put the sets at Disney World. I mean... Mm-hmm. This is just a Disney World, Disneyland. I always it was confused. Disneyland. Anyway, um, one's in California, going to fall into the ocean. One isn't. One's in America's basement. But um, <laughs> keep it going. Uh, uh, phenomenal. The cinematography overall. That's my pick. My huge pick. Um, my rip. Once again, we come back to the 1940s and the 1950s, where Professor is the most respected, esteemed culmination of all learning that you can get. Well, that's not a rip. That's I envy that. <laughs> I want it. I want I just, that. I just feel like I, I just it amazes me. Professor must have replaced doctor. Must you, have replaced professor you know, at some point well, in time. Well, but you I do ex- realize that you know those who cannot do teach. Screw you. <laughs> you know who says that? Those who cannot teach. Oh wait, is there a teacher in the room? <laughs> Ooh no. Must- those who cannot <laughs> teach say that thing. But. You know why I long for that? Because I get called professor all the time. And you know what that means, essentially? Nothing. It means, why do you get a red cent for what you do, you ignorant jerk? I went to, I went to gumstrap, bubble flop, ghoul university, and I know more than you. Your expertise is toilet. That's what, that's what professor means today in this country. So your, excuse me. Your degree has nothing on my Dr. Google. Ability. Exactly. So excuse me if I look at that and go, gee, it'd be nice to get a little respect for what I do. Yeah, instead, instead I a YouTuber you. gets way more respect than I do for what? Reviewing banana candy? Yeah. Thanks. Okay, I guess we are unrespected rubes for uh, reviewing movies. Scott? I got to do this because I always do it. You do it. Just realize how close that is to us being podcast movie critics. Oh, I know. Compared to people who actually have degrees in (laughs) film who who are actual critics of movies. Yeah, but I'm teaching a skill that's useful. I'm not going over. A film film degree is pretty useless. Ooh. Whatever whatever lets you sleep at night. a a A film theory degree is pretty useless. What, whatever gymnastics you have to do to feel okay about the fact that hey, there's not hypocrisy there. I don't, uh, hey, you, you know, he, it, I don't need to. Just, lo- I don't just need because to. he's a professor and should get respect 
but that I professor shouldn't get respect. I don't have. I, well, here's <laughs> the problem. I'm with that professor too, in the same boat of you're nothing useless. What, what about the professor money? of film theory? Yes, I'm lumped in with them. <laughs> but he should not get respect. I'm lumped in with them. There's a definitive. There's a definitive order of importance, I believe, of what's taught. Boy, I can't imagine why uh, Rage Master feels like he gets kinged up on on this show. <laughs> And here we go. Okay, guys, you're important. I get it. You guys are more important than me in society anyway. Can you just take it and punch me in the balls with your careers and shut up? Where did that come Where from? That? Now it's getting... Now, now we struck a nerve. We're moving on. My career isn't important at all. All We're I do is make money on. for people who don't need more money. I said move, gosh, I said moving on. You don't get it. Um, move on then. So, uh, another pick these sets which scott you already covered so but the sets the effects brilliant uh i guess a a final pick and then i'll give a rip which doesn't bug me but i'll give it i'll put it out there anyway uh a pick would be this did for me anyway did not feel like a long movie i don't know about you guys but for me it didn't feel like a long movie and that's a good sign now someone else may disagree and that's you know fine your take especially if you're not into the talky-talky, which I understand today's film-goer is interested in horrible CGI, I can't tell what's going on, flashy-flashy, shiny ball syndrome, to quote Scott. Uh, this, if that's all you need for a movie, this is going to bug you. But if you swear that you're in to the drama and the dialogue, you can't go wrong. I don't know about you guys, but I thought that was... I, I really don't have a whip with this because... It's a good film, and again, I have to put in a couple things that, again, when it was made, it's 1950s, CGI doesn't exist, there's limitations, I accept it wholeheartedly, and for what it is, I can't really rip on it. It gets the story, which, again, is a good story. Sure, sure. Acting is fantastic, and they do a very good job of what they wanted to do, needed to do. And I really can't rip on it. Now, could I nitpick and go? Wow. Well, yes. Sure. But I don't want to. I, mean, I don't want to rip into this film because I like it. I'm giving away the, the school, I know. But I, I don't see a need to really nitpick on it. Yeah, I mean, we kind of did with the naval tactic thing, but that was more an, a fun thought ex- exercise than it was a, a rip. So, um, I guess a rip and and personally, it doesn't bug me because I know the day and time and I am willing to forego that and say, Oh, well, different time. And that is the, the way the natives were depicted on that Island. I know for a lot of people that's problematic and therefore sinks the whole movie, but, um, I'm able to differentiate and say that was the time that was the depiction. Even if it did bother me, I'm willing to look past it and say, what, I'm upset that someone in 1954 doesn't view things the way that we do now in 2022? Shocker. I mean, Yes, cancel them! I'm not going to defend that depiction, but I'm also not going to let it get to me because what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do? Go back in time and punch Walt Disney in the face? Demand it gets eliminated from existence. Right, exactly. I'm not, no. Nope. So I put it there as a rip just because, yeah, it's, it's, it's dumb. But then again, it doesn't take me out of anything. It's, it's, it is such a minor point for me that it barely makes registers on the rip category. Barely. And that's only because of a sensibility that exists today that I know didn't exist back then. So uh, that doesn't ruin the film at all. And if it does ruin it for you, um, Wow, I don't know. You're going to miss out on a lot. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, I think that's pretty good. Unless anyone's got a final statement, they want a final rip or pick they want to jump out on? I don't. Okay. So let's do how many ships sunk. How many ships sunk do we want to give this? Anyone want to try first? Yeah, I'll go first because, unfortunately, I can't review this film because I didn't finish it. But I will say sure. that... Um, the half of the film that I like, that I watched, I liked, and I was drifting towards giving this a uh, seven-ish 
type of thing. And if I scaled it for the time, I'd probably bump it up a couple levels. But I can't rate it because I didn't finish it and uh, I just I ran out of time. Honest assessment. Thomas, you want to go or? I will give it nine. Ooh, good. Nine out of ten. Fantastic film. And I can see why it's a classic. Mm -hmm. I'll give it a 10 just because I grew up with it and I'll always remember the squid fighting scene and everything else about it. It was always a blast and the picks are, or the, the rips are so few and far between that they just become nitpicky. So um, with that in mind, sickies, you could pay attention to uh, the other fine shows on Raving Lunatic Media. You, uh, new Zodiac Task Force will be dropping soon if it hasn't already. You could also check out the Casatorium. And any other fine shows. And keep your eyes peeled for some new ZTF content coming out, not just the audio stuff. You could get that at our Discord or at... RavingLunaticMedia.com 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 Ragemaster What's left for them to do? Stay sick, sickies. We love a tale and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Mermaid Minnie Met her down in Madagascar She would kiss me any time that I would ask her, then one evening her flame of love blew out. Blow me down and pick me up, she swapped me for a trout. Got a whale of a tail to tell you lies, a whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon about. A whale of a tail and it's so true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Typhoon Tessie, met her on the coast of Java when we kissed I. Bubbled up like molten lava, then she gave me the scare of my young life. Blow me down and pick me up, she was the captain's wife. God.